Uh, for our scripture of the reading this afternoon, um, I asked Brother Frank Baker to read. I had a cold this past week, and my voice is a bit sore. So in order to save my voice, I'd like to ask Brother Frank Baker to lead us with the scripture reading. So our first reading is from Deuteronomy 23, verses 2 to 8. Let us hear the word of our God. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Behor, from Penthor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God has not listened to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not adhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not adhor an Egyptian because you have a sojourner in the land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 3. And there we will read verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And our last reading from chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, 
whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Thus far our readings. of Psalm 40, stanzas 2 and 5. This afternoon, we are again looking at what Scripture teaches regarding holy baptism as summarized and confessed 
uh, this time in Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So Lord's Day 27, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something I love about the sacraments. That's their simplicity. Think about baptism. Such a simple thing. In baptism, the minister sprinkles a little bit of water on a new Christian or perhaps on the child of a believer. Such a simple thing, but it's packed with meaning. Baptism teaches us about the simple gospel message. That simple message, something a young child can understand. But baptism also shows us the depths of what Christ accomplished for us. And the most seasoned theologian will never be finished exploring those depths. That's how deep they are. But of course, what is one of the best things about baptism or the sacraments? God has given us them to strengthen our faith. No, I think we all know that in theory. I think probably most of us sitting here have heard that before. The sacraments are there to strengthen our faith. Well, let's get practical. The last time you struggled in faith, <clears throat> did you think about baptism? And as you seek to grow in faith, do you ever think about baptism and what it means? what it's pointing to. Well, this is one reason why God gave us baptism and the sacraments. The sacraments are means of grace. God uses them to help us grow in faith. That's what we want to explore this afternoon as we focus on baptism. And so I've summarized the sermon as follows. In baptism, God teaches and assures us about his gospel promises in Jesus Christ. This afternoon, we're going to look at two things we're assured of. First of all, the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood. And second, the inclusion of our children among God's people. 
Now, one major theme found in the Bible is the theme of washing. Think only of the Mosaic Covenant. When people became ceremonially unclean, they went through a cleansing ritual. The priests also at the temple, they went through these elaborate washing ceremonies. Uh, God's promises in the Old Testament often included washing. Take, for example, Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And this theme, of course, is carried into the, the New Testament. Think only of Titus 3. God saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this theme of washing appears throughout Scripture. Why? Well, it's because sin has stained us. And we all have that stain of sin upon us. Sin has defiled our hearts, and our souls by nature are dirty from sin. And Scripture teaches us something important about this. People stained with sin cannot just come into God's presence. He is holy, holy, holy. He cannot look upon sin. So think of the Old Testament temple. That's why the priests had to go through these elaborate washing ceremonies. God was teaching everyone that if you wanted to come before Him, you had to be made clean. But not only that... God is assuring sinners that if they are indeed washed, then they are free to come before Him. And God was showing He's going to make it possible for people stained with sin to be washed clean from those sins. And this is what baptism pictures for us. Remember, Jesus Christ, God the Son, He instituted baptism. It's a sacrament given to us by God Himself. And God is showing us by this sacrament that He has made a way that we can be cleansed from our sins. We can come into His presence. And in baptism, water is sprinkled upon a person. It's meant to assure you that your sins have been washed away. Washed away. Now, when I say that, perhaps you immediately ask the same question as the first one of Lord's Day 27. Well, does this outward washing with water itself wash away our sins then? And here we confess, no, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sin. And think of the, old, the ceremonial washings in the Old Testament. Think of the priests and the sacrifices. What did they all point to? Of course, the main thing was the shedding of blood. That was the focus at the temple, the shedding of blood. And it all pointed ahead to the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. And the New Testament is clear that the blood of Christ for the washing away of our sins is received by faith. That's how we receive this cleansing. Think of what the Spirit says through Peter about the Gentiles in Genesis 15. Or, or Acts 15, God cleansed their hearts by faith. Think of what the Spirit says through Paul in Romans 3, verse 25. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. 
That is a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. And this propitiation by Jesus' blood is to be received by faith. By faith. So we receive Christ's blood and sacrifice by faith. And baptism is meant to strengthen your faith in these things for your salvation. It's an outward sign. Water is sprinkled upon you. It's meant to assure you of an inward reality. Christ's blood is sprinkled upon your hearts, washes away your sin. We should understand the powerful effect of Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians 3, which we read, describes the amazing reality of the church, also of this church here. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? See, this is the power of Christ's blood, of His sacrifice for our sins. See, in the Old Covenant, only the priests were allowed in the temple, and only the high priest could enter the innermost sanctuary where God was, only once per year. But now the Spirit of God lives in the church, also this church here. And Paul also tells believers in 1 Corinthians 6, that is, individual believers too, that they are temples of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's this cleansing from Je- with Jesus' blood, cleansing us from sin, that makes this reality possible. That's the power of Christ's sacrifice. Think only of what Hebrews 9 and 10 speaks about this. Hebrews 9, verse 12, Christ entered once for all into holy places, not by means of blood of uh, goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption, an eternal one. Hebrews 10, verse 10, by Jesus' obedient will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'll give you one more, Hebrews 10, verse 14. By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is why we can be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ's blood offered in sacrifice makes it a reality. And baptism... Is meant to assure you that these things are a reality for you, personally. Not just someone else in the pew. Not just for people who seem to have their life all together. It's meant to assure you that these powerful saving benefits are for you. That you would believe. And that by believing also you would bear fruit. So believe it with all your heart. Listen to question and answer 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Now, in this answer, 
we see the double cleansing pictured in baptism. There's a double cleansing, not just one cleansing, but two. Answer 73 speaks about the cleansing of both Christ's blood and His Spirit. Now, to understand this double cleansing, perhaps an illustration will help. And it might sound a bit strange at first. That's okay. I think it will help to get the point across. So imagine for a moment that you own a property with a lot of garbage on it. You want to get rid of all that garbage. Instead of bringing your garbage to the landfill, you decide that you're going to dump it all on a local parking lot to save money. So now that parking lot is filled with your garbage. And guess what happens? The city bylaw officer comes around and he says, you're littering, you broke the law, you need to do two things. You need to pay a fine, you broke the law, and you also need to get rid of that garbage. But there's good news. You have two friends who are going to help you out. One of them is rich. He graciously pays the fine for you. You don't have to pay it yourself. And the other friend owns a truck and a front-end loader. He's going to help you get rid of all that garbage, bring it to the dump, clean it up. Well, this illustration pictures the reality of sin in our hearts. Our hearts have been filled with the pollution of sin. We've stained ourselves with sin, put the garbage of sin there. It's a violation of God's law. And in response, God tells us we need to do two things. We need to pay the penalty. Fortunately, that penalty is death. But we also need the pollution of sin to be removed. We need to to have it gone. Well, the beautiful message baptism pictures for us is this. God Himself provides these things for us. Christ Himself steps in and has paid the penalty for our sins with His blood. The fine has been paid. The penalty has been met. Our record of debt is washed away in Christ's blood. He stepped in. So the threat of condemnation no longer stands over believers. He paid the price at the cross. But that's not the only cleansing baptism pictures. The Holy Spirit also begins to work in our hearts to remove that pollution of sin. He works in your hearts to remove the garbage that's there. The Holy Spirit's living water. It's going to clean up your heart, clean up your life. It's going to cleanse away everything that's dirty, everything that's rotten, everything that shouldn't be there. And by His power, the stench and the pollution of sin will be removed more and more from our life. This is the double cleansing spoken spoken of by the catechism. And this helps you in a very real way in your life. When you see the sin in your life and in your heart, I urge you, think about baptism. Right? Think about baptism. Think about the message it sends. What God is assuring you. And then come to God in faith. Ask Him to forgive your sins through the blood of Christ. 
And no, no for certain. Christ's blood has paid the price. He's paid the fine. He's paid the penalty. And also ask God to cleanse you from the pollution of sin that, that remains there. Ask Him to cleanse you by the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is powerful. He will help you to remove that garbage that is there. Ask God these things, and also trust. Trust that they are yours in Jesus Christ. This is what baptism is assuring us. This brings us to our next point. Now, having said these things, that leads us also to the next logical question, should infants too be baptized? This is a question asked at the end of Lord's Day 27. We can understand why this question comes up. We've just been talking about, you know, the washing away of our sins by Christ's blood, and I told you, I affirmed for you that water baptism itself does not wash away sins. This washing is received by faith in Christ's blood. And the simple reality is that infants do not have faith. It's the simple reality. So, it's a logical question that we ask. Should infants then receive baptism? Well, we as Reformed believers have answered this question with an unemphatic yes. Yes, infants too should be baptized. That's what we confess in Lord's Day 27. And it gives a, the following reason for this answer. Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. And through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. So, the reason why the children of believers must be baptized is because they have a certain status a covenantal status before God. And baptism marks this out. Now, some people believe the Bible is unclear about this whole matter about infant baptism. After all, there is not one clear example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament. And other people perhaps think to themselves, well, I can kind of see where the Reformed churches are coming from with their infant baptism, but I don't think they have a really strong case. And I would say to you that we should accept nothing less than a crystal clear case for infant baptism. And I am also saying this afternoon that the, the biblical case for infant baptism is in fact crystal clear. You need never doubt it. Not even for a moment. Why do I say this? Well, today I would like to look at this truth from our reading of 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at the specific words here, explore them in light of the Old Testament background. And I'll say some of this background was brought to my attention by Reverend Brian Cochran at the Western Ministerial recently. Thankful for that. It's really quite beautiful when you see it. Now, to begin... Let me give you the most basic argument for infant baptism. The most basic. So simple that a child can understand it. Let me ask you, in the sight of God, 
Are the children of believers considered clean or unclean? Are they considered clean or unclean? Answering this question will make us see whether or not infants should be baptized, the infants of believers. After all, baptism done with water is all about washing. It's all about clean and unclean, right? Well, if the children of believers are considered unclean, then obviously they must not receive baptism. On the other hand, if the children of believers are considered clean, then obviously they must receive baptism. And administering baptism to, to them would send the message that they are clean. They have that status. Now, what does Paul say about the children of believers in 1 Corinthians 7? He says, your children are not unclean, like the children of the world. They are not unclean. It's your crystal clear case for infant baptism. It's simple. The children of believers are not unclean. And so they receive baptism to mark them out as such. They are holy. Now, at this point, we might ask, well, why does Paul use the language of clean and unclean? And why does he use the language of holy here? Well, let's be clear what he's not saying. He's not saying that the children of believers are born without a sinful nature. He's not saying water baptism itself has washed away their sins. He's not also stating, he's not stating that they are regenerated. But we must understand he's using Old Testament language here. Think of the word holy. The word holy was often used to describe the people God set apart for himself. In Exodus 19, God tells Israel that they will be for him a holy nation. Think also of the language of clean and unclean. In the Old Testament, those who were unclean had to be removed from the assembly of God's people. They were not counted among the assembly. They were not allowed to be part of it. The unclean people had to be removed from the camp where God lives among His people. Now, sometimes the infant children in the Old Testament were not allowed to be part of God's holy people. They were considered unclean. We read about one example in Deuteronomy 23 where Moses talks about the children born to certain mixed marriages. If an Israelite man was married to an Ammonite woman, for example, their children had to be excluded from the assembly of God's people. In the case of those mixed marriages, the infants took on the unclean and unholy status of the non-Israelite parent. And there are more examples in the Old Testament. However, the amazing thing is that this situation is reversed in the New Covenant. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 7. In the section we read, Paul is explaining what should be done with the case of mixed marriages in the New Covenant. In the early church, you see it often happened that people who became Christians were already married to someone. And many times, sadly, the person's spouse did not become a Christian along with them, but stayed an unbeliever. And so the Corinthians, they asked Paul, well, should the Christian spouse divorce his or her unbelieving husband or wife? 
And the question makes sense. They probably wondered, does staying married to this person or engaging in sexual relationship with him or her defile me? Does it affect my status before God? And what about our children? Does being married to this person affect the status of my children? Do they have to be excluded from the assembly of God's people? Right, just like the children described in Deuteronomy 23? You can see why this would come up. Now, just what I want to see one more thing. In the Old Testament, usually a clean thing became unclean when it came in contact. So a clean thing, you have an unclean and a clean thing. When they came into contact with each other, the clean thing became unclean. It defiled it, right? It, the clean thing took on the status of the unclean thing. But here in 1 Corinthians 7, things are different. The unclean thing takes on the status of the clean. Why? Well, there were, many, there were some situations in the Old Testament where an unclean thing was made holy. This happened if the unclean thing touched something most holy. In that case, the most holy object made the other object holy. One example is the temple. Jesus alludes to this when he says about the temple in Matthew 23, what is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy? Now, why is this significant? What does Paul say about the church in 1 Corinthians 3? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does he say about believers in 1 Corinthians 6? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. Because the believing spouse is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The believing spouse has not been defiled by the unbelieving partner, but the unbelieving spouse has become sanctified. The, unbelieving, or the believing spouse's status as the temple of the Holy Spirit overcomes the unclean status of the unbeliever. It does not mean the unbeliever has been saved. Someone can be holy without being regenerated. However, it does mean that the union between a believer and the unbeliever has not affected the holy, clean status of their children. The children in those marriages, too, are holy. They are clean. They belong in the assembly of God's people. And this is one reason why the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. Children born into mixed marriages belong to the assembly of God's people just as much as the children born to two believers. Just as much. They are no different. Now let's be clear on one thing. This is not to give the go-ahead to single members to start seeking an unbelieving spouse. Right? Scripture warns against that. However, if any Christian does ever happen to find himself or herself married to someone who does not believe, this has not affected the holy and clean status of their children. Or if a child finds himself or herself in the situation where one parent is a Christian and the other is not, 
child does not have to doubt his or her status. The promises of God are for them just the same. All the children born to believers, whether one believer or two believers, are holy just the same. They are clean. They belong in the assembly of God's people. So they all must be baptized to mark them out as such. It's important for us to see this. Your children have a certain status before God, a covenantal status, and they must receive baptism. We want to know this not just so that we can happily continue baptizing infants. There are also some very practical applications to this. First, let me give you a word of encouragement. God has made his covenant with our children. Parents, God is there to help you, to guide you as a parent. Parenting is not always easy. Seek his help. And also encourage your children with the promises of God. And children, you can look up and you can know God has promised to be your God. And he says, you belong in the assembly of my people. God is eager to guide you in the ways of his covenant. Seek him. Trust him. Pray to him. Do not be afraid of him. Love him. Come to God in faith. Ask him to strengthen you in the faith. Ask him to lead you in obedience. He's faithful. He will do it. At the same time, there's also a warning. Right? Even though 1 Corinthians 7 calls the children of believers clean and holy, it does not mean they have been automatically regenerated or born again, right? And your status does not allow you to embrace a life of sin and unbelief, right? We all have to turn away from sin and unbelief. And covenant children, you must take care not to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Take care. And if you reject Christ and His sacrifice in your heart, then there can be no salvation for you. You must take that to heart. Take care that there's never an evil heart of unbelief in you. Finally, let me also leave you with some comfort. So what I've been trying to teach you from 1 Corinthians 7 is that the children of believers belong to the assembly of the people of God. We must understand, death does not cut them off from belonging to that assembly. Rather, they've simply joined the assembly of God's people in heaven. And you can know that. Now, I think of those among us who have suffered miscarriages, perhaps even stillbirths, or even the death of a child. As difficult as those things may be, take comfort also. Your children are with your covenant God in heaven. They are there with the assembly of God's people. So do not, be fear, do not fear. Be at peace. And praise your covenant God always. Amen.